All right. If you want to go ahead and start making your way back to your seats, and don't, don't forget, underneath the uh, little boxes in the back, we've got these reflection cards with some pins. So you might, might need those today, and so to take advantage. But if you would, go grab your seats. There's a little reflection cards underneath the black boxes, so like underneath, all the way at the, like near the ground. So like, I know it's kind of hidden, um, but down there, there's pins, there's reflection notes. Um, once again, today, we're going to enter into a story Jesus tells. As you know, we've been, it's our tradition to walk through some parables at the beginning of each year. Um, stories that are told to stir our imagination of life with God and God with us. It's a story today specifically that encourages us to exercise faith, to open our eyes, to unclog our ears, and sharpen our hearts through dialogue, uh, through a conversation with the Spirit and the Scriptures with one another at the feet of Jesus whom we're apprenticed to. That, in fact, what we see, especially in Matthew's gospel in chapter 13, is we see not just Jesus telling parables and unpacking parables, but then the disciples getting to unpack those parables with Jesus. That's what we're going to attempt to do today together. We're accustomed, I think, to coming to Jesus' words, particularly his parables, looking for pearls of truth, valued insights, answers to help us achieve a life full and forever, and, or at least to make it through the day, right? Isn't that the way we often come to the scriptures, especially the stories? We come looking for something to help us, something to get us through, something to, to open our eyes and open our lives, something of great truth and value. And you know what? Often we find what we're looking for. Oftentimes we find exactly what it is that we come to the scriptures in search of. But as we discussed last week, what if Jesus wants more for us than just to discover the thing of value that we're after? What if his intention isn't merely to give us what we're after, but abundantly more than we could ask or imagine? What if Jesus wanted us to become something more than we have in our minds, to grow into and mature into ones who, as he would describe it in Matthew 13, who are trained in the kingdom of heaven, who are trained in life with God, who become like masters of a house who bring out of his treasure what is new and what is old? What if Jesus actually wanted that for us? What if that was his desire for us? That he saw us becoming ones trained in the kingdom of heaven who could draw out the treasures of life with God whenever they needed to be, old and new. The more it turns out, this becoming more, it turns out, begins with a ready heart, an eager openness to life with God as God sees it, a hunger and thirst for right relating, as Jesus put it in the, um, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. The prerequisite isn't to have it all figured out, but to know you don't. And in your poor spirit, not despising what you don't have, but as the psalmist saying, earnestly seeking, going after it with a humble, joyous curiosity. That's the beginning. Not to have it figured out, but to know that you don't. And in knowing that you don't, not to let that disparage, but in the poorness of your spirit, to, to have a joyous hunger and curiosity for the thing in which you lack. Even a small act like grabbing a pen and a paper can help us posture our hearts, ready our hearts for the word and the words to come. That's part of the reason we have these things, not just so that you might gain an insight in a piece of treasure, a treasured pearl, a value of truth, so you could take that down and walk away with it. But in some ways, grabbing, and again, I'm not saying if you don't, it's okay, but like, listen, like there's some things of like going into, grabbing a piece of paper and a pen and expecting to converse with God, to converse with others with God, to be shown away. Opens our hearts, prepares our hearts, 
for a conversation with Jesus and one another. That the insight we might gain might help us not only to get what we're after, but to mature in life with God together. So we do this. We pray with me and then allow the words of Jesus that Ari's going to read for us to ready our hearts for today's parable and dialogue. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for, um, for the fact that what we long for, what we come to you after, uh, Lord, we often find you Lord, generously giving to us. But I pray, Father, as ones who um, have given our lives to you, who have apprenticed ourselves to Jesus, that we would be open to what is more than what we could expect. That we would become all that you would have us be. Lord, whole and holy, complete and full in your, um, in your life now, together. And so I pray with my friends for the next few moments that, um, that our eyes and ears would be open to, um, to more than we could expect. Lord, and that it would not just be um, an openness that, that, has us, um, that has us isolated in our own minds, but an openness that invites one another into our life with you together. So I thank you for your words and for this time and for this place. And most of all, for Jesus, who is the word of life. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Today's reading comes from Matthew 13, 10 through 17. The disciples came up and asked, Why do you tell stories? He replied, You've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. Not everybody has this gift, this insight. It hasn't been given to them. Whenever someone has a ready heart for this, the insights and understandings flow freely. But if there is no readiness, any trace of receptivity soon disappears. That's why I tell these stories, to create readiness to nudge the people towards receptive insight. In their present state, they can stare till doomsday and not see it. Listen till they're blue in the face and not get it. I don't want Isaiah's forecast repeated all over again. Your ears are open, but you don't hear a thing. Your eyes are awake, but you don't see a thing. The people are blockheads. They stick their fingers in your ears so they won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so they won't have to look. So they won't have to deal with me face to face and let me heal them. But you have God-blessed eyes, eyes that see, and God-blessed ears, ears that hear. All of, a lot of people, prophets and humble believers among them, would have given anything to see what you are seeing, to hear what you are hearing, but never had the chance. Thank you, Ari. Again, you can turn your, in your Bibles if you haven't already to Matthew 13. That's where we'll, we'll continue today, and that's where we'll be again next week too, just FYI. There's a beautiful paradox in life with God. A life lived in his presence and towards his purposes. A life lived in what our scriptures call the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. On the one hand, such a life is what we are made for. And so it is, as T.S. Eliot phrased it, a condition of complete simplicity. Our natural state, like we were naturally created, we were created to be in life with God, to live in his presence and towards his purposes. And having been made for such an existence, it is therefore a reality of sheer grace, all achieved for us, as Malcolm Guite says it, and achieved in us by Christ, as our gospels 
in our first parables of this season described for us. We have this on the one hand, that the kingdom of God is sheer grace all achieved for us, and if we'll allow him, achieved in us in Christ. But on the other hand, this life we are made for, a life which we are returned to by Jesus, cost not less than everything. To find it, says Guy, to recognize it, to yearn for it, is to let go of everything else. And that's what our story last week and even this week reminds us. And there is the central paradox, the seemingly contradictory reality of life with God, that on the one hand, admission is free, and on the other hand, it frees us from all that we have. Admission is free, and yet it frees us from all that we have. Life with God is where our true selves and purposes are found. And at the same time, it is a place where we lose ourselves in that finding. It's a place where we're found. We become whole and complete. And at the same time, it's the place where we lose everything to gain more than we could imagine. But here's where the paradox becomes doubly ironic. This selling all that we have to buy into this life with God is not a vow of poverty, but a readiness for, an earnest seeking after a trade-up. It's not a vow of poverty. It's actually an earnest seeking after something greater. In our opening parables from Luke, if you remember, the kingdom of God found us as sheep lost or as sheep found, as coins, a coin lost or coins collected already. Life with God is, like, is, is where we are found and brought home to our place, where our purpose, our value is restored. And the two parables in Matthew, the parable from last week and, and the parable from today, in the kingdom of heaven, life with God in his presence toward his purpose is an abundant life that we find and a drive to keep finding. Once again, we'll attempt to enter into one of Jesus' shorter parables this morning by putting our divinely gifted faculty of imagination to work. And yes, we think God actually gave us imagination. Gave it to us so that we might be able to, um, to mature. That imagination isn't something that we mature out of, but a faculty in which it allows us to mature into life with him. Remember, the goal of our time in the parable is not solely a single propositional truth. We're not coming into the parable to figure it out, right? That's not what the stories are for but rather to develop an understanding that allows us to bring out the new and old richness contained within. An understanding we come to not in isolation, but in dialogue. Dialogue with the Spirit and with Jesus in a community of Jesus' followers. So to begin, I want to read a parable, the parable and point out a couple of things to prime us for the following meditation and dialogue. All right? so I'm going to read it, and this time I want to talk about it for a minute before we try to work our way through it. So here we go. Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Jesus speaking. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The story sounds similar to the one before, doesn't it? But if you notice, there are differences. And because it's in the morning and we're tired and haven't had enough caffeine, I'll try to point those differences out rather than just have you try to find them. For one, last Sunday's parable said this, in case you forgot. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden. Like treasure hidden in a field. When one stumbles over it, covers it up, back up, goes, sells everything he has, and purchases the field, right? 
Life of God in that story is described as something we find. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden. It's something we discover, maybe trip over in an ordinary, if not familiar place. So life with God is something of life-altering value, which we run into. We recognize as life-changing, and so we change our life. We sell everything to, make, to take ownership, not only of the, the kingdom, the thing of value, a treasure hidden, but also ownership of where the kingdom is found, in the place where life is actually made. We don't just find the kingdom and take possession of the kingdom. We actually find the kingdom and take possession where the kingdom was found. It's a pretty incredible thing. The kingdom of God is this treasured thing hidden in a very familiar place in which when we discover it, we recognize that it's worth everything and more than we have. We sell what we have to buy, not just the thing itself, but the the place in which it is hidden. Pretty incredible. Today's parable is just as incredible, but from a different angle. It doesn't depict the kingdom of heaven as an object of great value something that they were going and finding, like that we just stumble over into. Remember what we just read. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. How many times have we read the parables together next to each other and thought that the kingdom of heaven was just a pearl? Right? It's natural. It's normal, right? They're, they're right next to each other. They flow in the deal. We talked about a treasure in one, pearl in the second. So it's easy sometimes for us to skip into the second parable. is just saying the same thing in a different way. Right? But maybe it's saying something different in a new way. Life with God in today's story is not described as something, but as someone, a merchant. Someone who is always on the lookout for something of tremendous value. The kingdom of God is not something, but someone who is always on the lookout for something of tremendous value. Life with God is searching. Life with God is seeking. Life with God is finding what we are after, recognizing something worth changing our life and selling all that we have found to claim something, maybe the same thing that we've actually always been after, but something of singular, whole, tremendous beauty. So in the first parable, Matthew 13, we have the kingdom of God, is something we find, a treasure we discover. Second one, the kingdom of God is someone who's always on the lookout for something of tremendous value. But here are a couple more things to note before our imaginative exercise. The first is something that is not said, but often assumed, in which I am certainly guilty of assuming. Generally, people read this story and assume the merchant is trading in pearls. But neither the text nor cultural history demands such a conclusion. Do you think, when you read the parable, do you think the merchant is selling pearls? I've always, I've always kind of read it that way. Just tend, like my, Again, my mind, we talked about this a little bit like last week, right? Our minds tend to fill in the blanks very quickly until we start to slow down. So as we're reading these stories, our mind just kind of fills in. So I hear a merchant who's in search of, of fine pearls makes me assume that, that that's, what he's, that's what he's marketing in, right? But the word for merchant literally means one on a journey, whether by sea or by land, especially for traffic or trade. It just means ones who's on a journey to trade, to, to do business, to, um, that, that is somebody who is buying and selling things. The fact that the character is a merchant means their vocation, whether selling linen, spices, or other goods, would put them in a port or seaside city where one might find pearls. So it actually 
the, the way the story is told isn't that it's a merchant of pearls, but that the merchant is in a place where pearls might be. But their job isn't necessarily selling pearls, buying and trading and selling pearls. Their job, more than likely, is just trader of goods, goods and services, right? And they happen, because they're in port cities, to be one who is on the lookout for pearls, because that's where pearls are found, in seaside cities. And pearls would have a particular meaning, especially in the first century. Objects that one scholar note were regarded as the most valuable and beautiful objects in existence. So pearls, especially in the first century, became a figure of speech for something of supreme worth and beauty. So this merchant who's doing his business, in the midst of doing his business, is always on the lookout for something of great worth and beauty. Something that would add to his life, make his life more full and valuable, like both from an investment standpoint, but also from like an aesthetic standpoint, from, like a, from just an enjoyment standpoint. Both a profitability and a beauty. So a merchant, by occupation, would have more access to pearls compared to, say, a farmer, like we talked about last week, right? So we have kind of a farmer, who is probably a farmer in a field, right, who discovers hidden treasure. Now we have a merchant who, in his vocation, discovers and is on the search for pearls, even if that merchant isn't in the business of buying and selling pearls. Like, that's not his only thing, right? Just keep that in mind. But second, while there is some debate among scholars, theologians, and pastors, preachers, the word used for the phrase um, describing what is sold, the all that in verse 46, or more literally, all things as he, as, as he had in the second story, seems to be a reference to the merchant's previous finds, i.e. other pearls. So in the first story, the words used to describe what the farmer or person in the field does is they sell everything that they have, all of their life they give to purchase the place where life is made and the kingdom of God is hidden, right? In the second story, what's, what the text seems to, to, be, to, to be opening us up to is the idea that they're not selling everything they have, but the things already that they found of great value, the other pearls that he's always been in search of. So it makes us, it's, it's meant to make us think that the merchant has been after pearls and finding pearls. He's been seeking and finding pearls for a long time. That the, the life with God is not something new to this person, but something this person's been after. It's actually found and experienced, but it's continuing to go after and continuing to look for. And as we'll talk about, continues to find. So again, while the similar to the preceding story, the implication is that the merchant has found the value of life with God, but is always on the search for more of what he has found and willing to abandon, relinquish what he already possesses in his ideas and thoughts of life with God, of what he's experienced in life with God. He's le- those are yesterday, and he's in search for what is tomorrow, what is more in, uh, in light of something of tremendous beauty and value, the singularity of of life with God. So, again, the stories are similar, but the stories are a little bit different. Regardless, what we see in both parables, though, is this. Whether on land or by sea, found by stumbling onto or searching out, life with God, as Jesus said to begin his ministry, requires us to turn and turn and change everything, right? There's a piece of giving up what we think about, what we need for life. There's a piece of giving up what we've already received from God for something more, right? 
Jesus said it in Mark's gospel, right? Time's up. Kingdom of God is here. Change your life and believe the message, the good news. Speaking to a people who are coming because they wanted the message of Jesus, right? Okay, so with all that in mind, let's work our way into and through the parable of the merchant, or as I like to call it, the parable of being ready for a trade-up. That was supposed to be funny, but nobody laughed. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. You got it. Great. That's awesome. That's great. Um, that's why I changed out the communion stuff just for you, Roy, because I knew you laughed at my jokes, so I appreciate it. Oh, uh, yeah. I told you. We've always said Roy has more stars than everybody else. We've all known this, right? And so, yeah, yeah. That's not saying you can't earn it. Just saying you got to do some stuff. It's great. Okay. <laughs> A slight change. Sorry about that. A slight change from what we did last week. When we get to the questions... Throughout the story, the questions will appear on the screen. So last week, I read, it, read us the story and just kind of let you sit in the questions and, and kind of move through it at a, probably a little faster pace. This week, the questions will pop up on the screen, and I'll let you sit in them for about a minute or so, right? And so that way, you can have some time if you want to write th some things down or whatever, but you'll have a few moments to consider. But like last week, let's begin by doing this. Let's take three deep breaths. Each breath in, envision the Spirit of God with us, filling our lungs, and as you exhale, envision expelling your distractions, whatever might be distracting you today. Fear, anxiety, boredom, apathy, confusion, assumptions, pride, whatever it may be. Deep breath in, spirit of God filling us, exhaling out our distractions. All right, now close your eyes and imagine yourself a successful business person, a competent person of trade. Years of apprenticeship, hard work, and God's gracious fortune have allowed you to build up a comfortable life and a profitable profession in the textile trade. Buying and selling woven wonders expanded to trading the resources needed for their production. You started out just selling goods made by those locally around you, but now you trade in wool, silk, dyes, etc. The regional development of your services has meant you've spent more than your fair share of time in the, on the road, in the ports and at seaside towns. Early on in this profession of yours, you discovered the beauty and the value of fine pearls. You ran into one along one of the first ports that, um, that you're doing trade. A treasure not so common in your landlocked hometown several hundred miles away. Immediately, these precious miracles of creation had your affection and your longing. While some people seek after them as a hobby or in a wishful aspirations of stumbling on the winning lottery ticket, you've made the search for these little treasures an obsession. At least that's how your family, friends, and even employees refer to it. Your years of seeking and finding have given you a keen eye for what you encounter. You know what is what. You can tell the difference between a beautiful, excellent pearl and one of lesser value. And you're always on the lookout for the best and only the best and more of the best. You found many fine pearls over the years on all your travels. Pearls of immense value that have brought you much of what you enjoy in your life. Now, but both internally and externally, they've afforded you leisure and peace of mind and satisfaction even helping you stay grounded and steady in an ever-churning world. It turns out that this obsession has, made, has as much to do with the quality of your daily living as your profession does. You've sought out the beautiful and found their value 
in everyday life. Yet your pursuits and discoveries have kept you hungry for more. Not out of greed or lust to merely have more, but because it is inconceivable to you not to continue to seek the goodness of such things. Their worth and their beauty. So first question. What's life like being comfortable but not complacent? Driven because of what you have tasted. Seeking because you have found. What is life like being comfortable but not complacent? Driven because you have tasted. Seeking because you have found. I'll give you just a second to reflect on that before we keep going. One day on your usual trade journey, waiting for the transfer of goods and service, goods sold and bought, you go for a walk through the booths of a small coastal village, a normal routine you've, you've had for years. The saltiness of the sea air fills your nostrils while the sound of bartering and begging fills your ears and, and what little space uh, between you and the vendors there is. And that's when you catch a glimpse of something exceeding your expectations. You were on the lookout for the best pearls, as always, but this pearl, sitting on the back of a vendor's table in an elegant box atop a crimson pillow, takes your breath away. What goes through your head when you discover what you are always looking for and find that it is more wonderful, more beautiful, more impressive than even you, one learned and on the lookout for the finest could have imagined? What happens when you, who is on a search for the best, find something even more better than what you were actually searching for. You approach the vendor slyly, trying not to give away your amazement at the discovery, hoping, as a good, wise business person, to get a good deal on the most exquisite pearl you've ever encountered. You can't help, despite all of your experience, but to be a bit nervous about the ensuing haggle. You take a deep breath and ask, <clears throat> how much for that one in the back? Motioning with your eyes, hoping not to draw too much attention to the pearl or your excitement. To your dismay, the vendor knows his pearls too. He'll not part with this one at a bargain, perhaps not at all, as you soon discover. So what emotions do you feel when you begin to realize that what you desire, what you've always sought after and found in various forms here and there, but not like this, what are you beginning, what you are beginning to need is going to cost more than you expect and that there will be no compromise on its price? What emotions do you feel when what you're after is going to cost more than you expect and that there will be no compromising in its price.
Perhaps you could live without this pearl, you think. But almost as quickly as the thought comes across your mind, you know it's not true. All your finds to this point, every fine pearl before, every good from them as incredible as it, as it has all been can never compare to this thing of beauty and value in front of you. You know if you walk away now without the pearl, all, the, all that you possess in pearls in life will be dulled, grayed by the memory of what you discovered but willfully left behind. Being a diligent entrepreneur, you quickly calculate the value of all that you've found and possessed over the years. All those fine pearls, hard-earned and graced. The finds that have brought you comfort, peace of mind, safety, satisfaction, and a future. In a moment of surreal speech, you offer the merchant the totality of your life's committed obsession. What does it feel like to make the offer? To hear the words coming off your lips, here's everything as you release all that you hold on to in hopes of gaining this wondrous and beautiful treasure. What does it feel like to make the offer? What does it feel like in the quiet that comes immediately after? Upon making you offer, you half expect the merchant to turn you down. But instead, you hear an affirmation of acceptance. That will cover it. What does it feel like to have your offer accepted? Knowing what comes with its acceptance, both the cost and the price. What does it feel to have your offer accepted? You arrange with the merchant a timeline for return and payment in full so you can make what is now yours truly yours. As you return home, you begin the process of selling off all those fine but lesser pearls. It will not take too long to liquidate. After all, you've been a diligent seeker and a competent finder, and the quality items you are unloading are evident. Finally, the day arrives when you exchange what has been good for what is grand. You hand the vendor his price and take possession of this precious of great value, of wondrous beauty thing that you've sought your entire life. What do you feel at this moment? Will you stop seeking and searching for fine pearls now that you've got this one of great value? Or will your obsession be satisfied, but for a moment, and your hunger and thirst increase? Will it be satiated or just satisfied? There's a difference, right? Is your hunger for more gone because you have the one great pearl? Or is it only increased? Think about that for just a second.
Matthew 13, a chapter full of parables. We have Jesus speaking parables to the crowds, explaining parables to his disciples. And we have in this case, Jesus stepping out of a time with the crowds to explain a parable to the disciples, explaining it, and then going into more parables and giving them more parables just to sit in, not to explain, but again, to let them enter into. And he asked them after telling these stories in Matthew 13, verse 51, have you understood all these things? The disciples said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What we know in the chapter, the flow of the chapter is the disciples didn't really understand everything. <laughs> Completely, right? So are they saying that they've got it, like that this is in just the flow, or is this a, a, an acknowledgement that they've been talking about it? Does something happen between verses 53, 52 and 53? And the way that it's structured, the way that it's put together, there's an assumption, both internally within the chapter and in the text, but also what we know throughout the whole of the Gospels, the way of Jesus' life and interaction with his disciples, how they moved and all those other things, that there was dialogue that happened outside of all these contexts that we have given for us. There's more parables told, more things that Jesus did that could ever be recorded, right? More conversations that were had than we could ever know. And somehow in the midst of those conversations, in the midst of those interactions, outside of just the, here, I'm giving it to you, now now go kind of things, here, come and take this treasure, this pearl, this thing that you're after, and now run with it, there's some sort of dialogue that's happening for three years. And somewhere in the midst of that dialogue, the disciples begin to understand what Jesus was invited them into, what he was helping them see. Like Jesus said, and, and um, already read for us, that indeed they weren't repeating Isaiah again. Their eyes were indeed open and blessed. Their ears were indeed open and blessed. Their hearts were passioned and open to all that God had for them. And so, the assumption is, in our face history, the presumption is, that in order for us to be ones who don't just come to the scriptures, grab what we need and run, but actually get to enter into the depths of all that we're after and find more and more and more and more of what we're after requires us to have some dialogue too. Dialogue with the Lord, with Jesus, and others like the disciples who are following Jesus together, right? And so for a few moments, that's what we're going to do. We're going to practice what's been practiced for generations since the first disciples. We're going to dialogue with the Lord and dialogue with one another. So up on the screen, there's some re reflection questions. The first two are for you. Just you. For take a few moments with the Lord, with Jesus, with the Spirit, and dialogue. To ask for your heart to be searched. Ask Him to search and to know. Are you seeking things of great value, beauty, and worth? Are you satisfied with what you found? Or while you're content... Is there a drive for what you found that keeps looking out for more? Is there something that keeps moving you for more? Sometimes I think, especially in faith, that we're, we think contentment is this, again, satisfaction of satiation. We've got all that we need and we need nothing more. But remember, we didn't, we, that's not what the word contentment means in our scriptures. When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, he doesn't say that they shall be satiated. <laughs> That they, will have, that they will never hunger. In fact, he's saying it's a hunger and thirst that keeps hungering and thirsting, right? It's not a hunger and thirst like, like someone starving to death who doesn't get what they need and therefore dies. But it's, it's a hunger and thirst that keeps a drive for life, keeps a longing for more because they've tasted and seen that it is good. 
And so ask yourself, one, are you, even, are you searching after things of great value, beauty, and worth? Are you one who just goes about your day because you found something, you don't need to find anything more, so you're not really looking? Are you one who, or are you one who is content but still driven? And just let the Lord search you and, and deal with you in that, right? Like if you need to repent, repent. If you need to confess, confess. If you need to praise, praise, right? So we have about three minutes of quiet to do that with, you, with yourself and the Lord. And then I'll call you into the third question, which will be a discussion time. Something to do in groups, okay? So a couple minutes, first two questions with the Lord before third question together. All right, so maybe, you're, maybe you need a little more time alone, and that's fine. But if you're ready, go ahead and move into groups of two to four. Grab somebody around you. And then let the third question just be a springboard. In what ways does the description of life with God as someone seeking to find something they know that they actually have and more of it inform our daily roles and relationships? How does that impact the way we're going to live this week? Let that just be a springboard into conversation. Um, so go ahead and talk amongst each other, and then um, Chaz will call us together in song in just a few minutes.